Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here in dining room studios with comedian, TV guy, dad, person who enjoyed the theme song to my podcast, <laughs> really, John Henson. Was, thank you very much. Thank you for being on. Thank you for rocking out. I was enjoying it. I actually got into the groove. I felt it. Yeah. It was convincing. Who did that song for you? Um, that is a listener and friend of mine whose name is Tom Rapp. He goes by Trap Dog. And, and he does all the jingles and music for the show. And you'll hear some more of them as the show goes on. It's uh, I've had that experience of picking music for your show. And it's you can get very deep into that mm-hmm. wormhole, man. Yes. I, uh, years ago, uh, I had a, a short-lived show on Spike TV, and uh, the before, John Henson Project. Yeah. And I uh, thank you for remembering. Of that. course. You. So you're the one that watched. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, uh, I got G Love to do uh, my music, G Love and Special Sauce. Yeah. And uh, um, I was like, that That was like a big deal for me because I was a fan. That was kind of before he blew up. He had a Coke campaign for a while. I remember that. Um, and uh, But that was like, that was fun. Like I got to talk to him and, you know, get on the phone with him and I, when I heard it. So I got to rock out to my song. Now I get to rock out to your song. Thank you very much. So lots of stuff to talk about with you. Um, I was just listening to you on Dom Herrera's podcast. <laughs> Ooh, that one probably got pretty dark, right? Was <laughs> well, that the one all about my divorce? Uh, it was a bit about your divorce. It's also the one where you said that if women and if if wives knew what their husbands jacked off to, they would never have sex with them again. You would never even talk to them again. You would literally just walk out of the house with the clothes on your back and be <laughs> like, "It's you know what? It's I, I'm young. I can start over. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, so my husband and I were watching... Van- Do you watch Vanderpump Rules? I don't. Not unless I'm jerking off. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. No, I don't, I'm not a... I'm well, not we were a- watching this show. Was it that... Now I can't... Now I, I believe it was that show. And there was a woman on screen, and I was wondering, are those fake breasts? And I said to my husband, are those fake breasts? Because in my experience, every single man knows what fake breasts, like the difference and how you can tell. And like a dog smells fear. I we guess. literally, we can tell. <laughs> exactly. So he, you know, without missing a beat was like, no, I think those are natural because usually if they're fake breasts, then they would, you know, fall this way and they'd have a ridge that way and blah, blah, blah. Which like, I wasn't surprised by his answer because like I said, in all my years on this earth, I've learned every single man knows the difference between mm-hmm. real and fake. But then I started thinking, but why? Why is this like, why does every single man know this? And I, I, I know it's naive, but I think I would have actually preferred if he had been like, oh, I don't know. Well, I mean, look, it's because uh, 99% of the time, 
breasts are our favorite thing in the world. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like asking it's like asking a kid if they can tell the difference between carob and chocolate. Like they know the difference. <laughs> I mean, they don't need to look at the packaging. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh because my wife and I just had this conversation. Like my wife and I have this conversation uh have had it recurrently, but we just had it last night because Kendra Wilkinson was on television mm. and I did Worst Cooks in America on Food Network and she came on and my wife was like, no, like, are you – I wondered when I saw her and I knew you were – I was like, oh, I wonder if he finds her attractive. And I was like, not if I had a gun to my head. And really? No. Which, no. by the way, kudos for answering that question because that's a giant trap. It yeah, can be. Yeah. It can I mean, be. You, it's like you can't go, dude, I'd hit it in a heartbeat. <laughs> you got to be like, I mean, I guess she's all right. No, you uh, – but but – but for me, uh, some of it is that, like, I am not a fake boob guy. Mm-hmm. I'm just a, uh, I want, I, I, and I'm also not a big boob guy. Uh, my theory is um, if you have a girl that uh, has, like, A cups or B cups, um, it is Always prom night, dude. It is. You are always <laughs> unwrapping a Christmas present for the first time. You know what I mean? But actually, we, I don't. Well, I mean, I want to. Do, are you suggesting that large boobs have been unwrapped many more times? I'm suggesting that time is harder on big boobs. Oh yeah, than it is on. I believe boobs. that's so true. When you have a smaller boob. It tends to, in my opinion, look more youthful. Got that as new they, boob. Yeah, it still smell. has that new boob smell. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in your 40s and you have D cups and you've had a couple of kids, you know, it's just a matter of time before I am literally scooping your tit out of your armpit mm. and trying to stack it back onto your chest mm-hmm. into the field of play. You know what I mean? <laughs> because there's sort of a rainwater runoff, you know, it just sort of seeks seeks even ground i know what you mean well so i'm as we record this i'm extremely pregnant by the time people hear this i may have already had the kid but um i feel like all the pregnancy fat (laughs) has not exactly gone to my breasts it's gone to like i don't as I'm saying this, I'm like, why am I sharing this? It's pretty gross. I feel like I just have extra back fat, and it's just it's just all around. It didn't it didn't go, yeah, didn't go exactly where I would have wanted it to go. No, I mean it never does. And here's the thing: it's you know I think women are far more concerned about the weight that they gain during pregnancy than men are. Like you literally have a get out of jail free card. Like That's you got a freebie, dude. Me. Make yeah. it worth it. Yeah, you know you don't need to be like. Kale smoothie kind of let it hang, bro. Get your money. <laughs> oh, it is worth, hanging, you know. Uh, but I, you know, uh, my wife, uh, my wife has has been pregnant twice, and um, I, 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 like, I didn't even notice where she was gaining weight or not gaining weight. I, I, you know, I'm just like, there's a baby coming. You know, yeah, I think that's how my husband is. I, I believe that he's just like you. Just look pregnant. Whereas to me, it's like I look pregnant and I also look like I've gained weight. Like to me, it's the both things at once. We, but they're really. I mean, I, I do subscribe to the pregnancy glow. Now, I didn't know you. I'm. I didn't know you pre-pregnancy, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to blow smoke. But like <laughs> you do. But you're like you have beautiful skin. Oh, you know what I mean. Shucks. And there's there's a there's I don't know, but like and it could just be that women maybe are. That there's a happiness. Mm-hmm. Now you're 
you know, that happiness might expire at about eight and a half months because the last a, couple of weeks get kind of uncomfortable. But there is a contentedness. Yeah. It's like, because, yeah, I, I'm uncomfortable and I would not say every single day is a wonderful day because I'm being this pregnant is uncomfortable and there's a lot of things I'm worried about. That being said, there's this contentedness that goes with it of like, oh my God, there's a baby on its way. Yeah. I think women go from that like, oh, the miracle of childbirth to get it out. You <laughs> yes. know what I mean? Like, it's just like you're ready to be like, let's wrap it up. I'm ready to get a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, all that kind of stuff. So another thing you said on the podcast was you said that you feel a little bit like you're having a midlife crisis and like you've discovered that you've been horrible and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth because I I don't think I got it verbatim, but like horribly miscast as a guy with all this responsibility. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm starting to sort of talk about this in my act a little bit, my stand-up, but it's like, I think there's just sort of an assumption that once you get married and you have kids, you know what the fuck you're doing. Like people just start looking to you for <laughs> answers, you know, like, so what do we do about this? And you're like, I, you know it took me five years to get through high school. I don't fucking know, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I got you pregnant. I don't know how to fix a hot water heater. I'm not Schneider, the mm-hmm. super. No, I can't <laughs> fix shit just because we have children. And and also just, I mean, there's certain questions, I think, like uh, that that kind of remind you of how ill-suited you are. Like somebody said to me recently, um, uh, how are you set for estate planning? <laughs> no, no, you know, <laughs> It's like I w- I'm, I definitely plan on having one. I mean, that's my 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 estate plan at this point is a lottery ticket. You know what I mean? I like I. So there's the, I, I yes I feel uh, like I live sort of uh, in a state of arrested adolescence. Mm. My life is kind of my own version of Freaky Friday, where <laughs> I am 14 year old me living in 49 year old me, going what the fuck you know i relate to that so strongly i have so many days where i'm like i feel like i'm supposed to know this by this age like i feel like my parents definitely did um and i don't i mean just things like i don't see i don't even know exactly what estate planning is (laughs) it is well you know basically what it means is uh it's 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 sort of akin to a will. So like okay. if anything happens, you know, you you put stuff in, you can have a, a living will or, you know, revocable trust so that your assets would be passed on and it wouldn't have to go through probate court. Right. I hear all that. the words and yeah, I get no, the general gist of it. A lot of word salad yeah. in there. Um, but I've been trying to roll over a 401k for months now. And I actually know how to, at this yeah. point, I know you how gotta to You got to get it. it on its side. Otherwise, it can throw up and vomit and <laughs> exactly. uh, choke on it. Flathead, yeah, actually. exactly. Yeah, you know, you it's get, a real nightmare. <laughs> you gotta, your 401k has to wear a helmet. <laughs> I only recently learned about flathead syndrome. There's so much. Yeah. There's so, you know what? It, here's the thing, though. So many people are fine who did not go to classes at the hospital to learn all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make this bigger than just talking specifically about having a baby. I was trying to talk about finances and babies, and I'm realizing you don't go to classes at the hospital to learn about finances. Mm -hmm. But I think if you want to delve into the world of things that will freak you out, it's very easy to. And I have. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think some of the reality of those classes are, because we did that, you know, I think some of it is just to alleviate your anxiety. Yes. It's just so that you can feel, I mean, quite honestly, you get about 70% of the security from buying the baby books and just leaving them on your bedside <laughs> Knowing table. Knowing that they're there. Than you do from reading them. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like just... You know, at a certain point, it's like horseshoes and hand grenades, man. You just keep the kid alive and you'll figure out the rest. But the first kid especially is like, a, ah, you know, it, it's it's it, suddenly it's the hurt locker. And, <laughs> and every step you're like, holy shit, it's going to blow up. So you're saying that you feel like you're living in a, a bit and um, an arrested development existence. Do you think that's because you went into show business? Like, is there a sliding doors alternate version of your life if you had stayed on the East Coast and gone into something else where you would have been like a proper quote unquote adult? Or is that more just who you are? Yeah, I don't even think I was uh, a proper quote unquote teen. I okay. mean, I was I I I went into uh, to, to stand up because I'm not good at anything else. And not even that I'm good at stand-up. It's just I suck worse at everything <laughs> else. Um, you know, I'm not kidding. It took me five years to get through high school. I got I got, I got, got asked to leave a public high school after my junior year. Why? And you got to really shit the bed to be asked to leave a public school. Yeah. Um, what happened? Uh, I... Uh, I you set something uh, on fire or no? Well, <laughs> yes, many times <laughs> a day. Um, I, uh, I, I, uh, I had a, a budding sales business, um, and uh, and I, uh, I, I found uh, that in direct competition with my schoolwork. So I had to alleviate myself from my class burden mm. to tend to my business right. quite often. You were entrepreneurial. That's the Was way it I like to think of it. An illegal business? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Were you selling to were you selling drugs? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I was selling it was put it drugs or fake ideas. No, I was selling pot back when there was something called nickel bags. You're going to want to go to Wikipedia now. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, no, I, I I started selling pot when I was 15 or 16 and um you know, uh, I just wasn't very interested in school. I think I remember this. Uh, I just saw some people from my high school. You went to a high school in Connecticut, <laughs> I right? went to high school in Connecticut, and I just did a road gig in Denver, and a, a few people from my high school happened to be settled in Denver, and they came, and there was like a lunch that we went to the next day, and they were like, so, hey, whatever happened when you just like were gone from high school. And I was like, yeah, about that. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I think sophomore year of school, I skipped 67 days of school out of 180. Wow. So more than once out of every three days from the school year, I was gone. Mm -hmm. um, and that was not the, that year I made it through. <laughs> it was the next year where they were like, and scene. You know, and uh, and so I, I I repeated my junior year, and I went to a private school uh, that uh, was for kids that had either been in private school since they were in sixth grade, or kids like me that needed more structure mm. in their environment. How'd and you do there? I actually became an honor student, and I I, uh, I went on to be president of the student body, and uh, I uh, I got an award. Uh, I got the headmaster's award and graduation. I, I had a moment when I was about, I guess it would have been about 16, 17 after my junior year. And I was like, I always wanted to 
act or do comedy and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I might be the guy that doesn't make it out of my hometown. Mm. I was like, I think I was, um, I mean, I wasn't a legit bad kid, but I romanticized bad kids mm-hmm. and that kind of lifestyle. And I wanted badly to play that role, you know? What do you think it was about? Well, you have a bunch of older brothers, right? I do, but they were all gone by that okay. point. Like my brothers are seven to 14 years older than me. So by the time, you know, by the time I was like 10 or 11, it was, they were out of the house and it was just me and my mom. My parents divorced when I was uh, 11 mm-hmm. and um, uh, my mom was an uh, uh, alcoholic and okay. a drug addict. And um, so there was, you know, about five years of just chaos, like mm-hmm. chaos. Like what was it like? Brutal. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, you know, the weird thing is I think at that point, you know, I knew that like it wasn't supposed to be this way. I knew that my friends didn't live like I lived, but, you know, it was also the only life I knew. So you, there was a matter of fact acceptance, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but like, uh, I, I, like, I remember being um, pulled into conferences with teachers and stuff. And, uh, you know, they were like, what is going on, dude? And I was, you know, it's like, uh, it's, you know, it's not good at home. You know, we like, you know, I come home, I'd be locked out of the house and, you know, kicking the front door, trying to get in for 15, 20 minutes and it's 20 degrees outside. And and did someone purposefully lock you out or just not aware? Not aware. Okay. You know, I mean, look, I, I, you know, this is my mom's gone now, um, but uh, my just, mom was extre- just lost that listener. No, but she's extremely loving, extremely nurturing. She just was a deeply dysfunctional person. Right. You know, uh, I heard a guy say once, uh, and I, I, this really stuck with me. He said, nobody ever denied me anything. It was in their power to give me, mm. you know, to the extent that my mother had limitations as a parent, she was operating at the limit of her abilities, you know, um, she just was a bit of a broken toy, you know, right. and and um, and so you know there was probably five years where there was like no clean clothes, no hot food, nobody getting you up for school in the morning, nobody asking you if you did your homework, nobody looking at your grades, nobody asking you where you were going or who you were going with or when you were coming home. So you really were kind of on your own. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I and think, that was after your parents split? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I think that chaos uh, made me angry. I like it. I just knew, I knew that, like, I didn't understand why life seemed so easy for all the kids that I was going to school with. Like, I just knew something. And I just assumed it was me. There was something mm-hmm. was wrong with me, you know. Um, so I was mad. I was just sort of angry and defiant. Mm-hmm. And so when I had like, when somebody was like, "Oh, hey, you can get, you know, quarter pound for 160 bucks. That's 40 bucks an ounce. Five dollars a nickel bag. 170. You know, do the math, and you're like, wow, I can turn some money here. And and then you know, all of a sudden, you start, you know, now there's a reason for people to talk to you. Now, all of a sudden people know your name. They're, you know, Hey, hey you, you know, and you just start drifting that way. Now I was still like in 
all the school plays and I was in theater and, you know, some of the classes that I was taking even before uh, I left my high school were like AP classes. I just wasn't going, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I didn't have any, uh, skill set. Like I didn't know how to study. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know how to, you know, manage my time or, or take care of myself or go to bed on time or any of that. Like, Did you feel like anyone cared whether you did well or not? Yeah. I mean, my family, you know, every, I felt loved in my family and I had, you know, a very tight set of friends. But in terms of, here's, this was like a very emotional moment for me. I, I, uh, I had gone a long time without therapy. And uh, a few years ago, I, I started going back to a therapist for a little while. And, uh, you know, you have that if you go to, a, if you've been to therapy, there's, you know, sort of a, honeymoon phase with your therapist where you just, they're like, so tell me about your life. Tell me, you know, who you are. Tell me what your origin story is as a character. And I told this woman over the course of an hour the way I grew up. And I could see on her face that it was not okay. Mm-hmm. Like I was experiencing it through her eyes. And I started to become a little self-conscious of that. And and it, we got to the end of the session and she goes, you know that like today the state takes kids away for that. Like somebody should have gotten you, mm-hmm. you know. You would have been a foster care kid had anybody known or you would have had somebody intervening. And that was like when I was like, oh, I didn't think about it that way, you know, because I felt loved. I felt cared for. I just, you know, I just thought we were just sort of dysfunctional, but it was a little deeper. In I think kids just normalize whatever their reality is. Right. Because I don't know what the other option is. Right. You know, if you, when you're that young, you just, and, and you, and you think it's you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I had some experiences with teachers that were just, uh, you know, there's a guy named Mr. Smith, my third grade teacher, and uh, he's just awful. I think, uh, I don't know if it was my mother that complained about, I know I thought he was playing favorites mm. with other kids in the class, and I'm pretty sure I told my mother that. And I don't know for a fact that my mother told Mr. Smith and made that compliment to him or comment to him, but he like, in the middle, of, I'll never forget this, he was like... uh now, there have been some complaints that I play favorites, um, but, uh, you know, if you have a car and uh, and that car gets you everywhere you need to go, you can depend on that car. You love that car. And every Saturday you go out and you wash that car and wax it. But if you have a car that breaks down all the time, you know, you, you're not, you know, you don't feel the same way about that car. And then, <laughs> what he, a deck. And, and then he goes... Matt, how many homework assignments have you missed this semester? Matt goes, none. Mark, how many have you missed? Uh, one. John, how many have you missed? And I go, I don't know. And he goes, let me tell you. And he gets out the book. Like, and I was oh like, my God. wow, dude. Wow. Like, you know, I'm a father now. If a guy did that to my kid, I would drop him like a dirty shirt. You know what I mean? Like, and I just thought, wow. Like, you think of, like, elementary school teachers as, well, surely they're picking people who are quality. 
what a fucking asshole, you know? And also, just to use his stupid analogy, there's an argument that you would put more time and energy and attention into the car that keeps breaking down because it needs more grease. Let's yeah, say. well, that, I mean, what I took from that is, oh, I don't work right and I am to be discarded and I'm not lovable, you know? I mean, it was a really... The dick. Yeah, yeah, you know? But, you know, then again, he's probably dead now, so... <laughs> At least we have that. Yeah. Um. Okay. Drug selling question. This is just something that I have always idly wondered. How close were you to like super scary people or were you not? Uh, I bought drugs in a part of my town that was, um, you know, it was a ghetto and uh, there were not a lot of white faces around. And, um, uh, you know, there was one, I mean, yeah, I, I, you you were on red alert when you went down there. It was nerve wracking, and and uh, I had a guy that I knew and trusted, a guy that I went to school with, and he was uh, helping me get it. But you know, I had moments where, um, you know, I, I would see guns. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go into a, a room to buy, make a buy, and there would be somebody holding a gun. You know, uh, who are you? What are you doing here? Kind of thing. Um, I think I'm, I, I want to say like in my sophomore year of high school, I might've even actually asked a guy if I could buy a gun and I didn't even know why I just wanted one. And I, did you <laughs> get one? It was funny because I was like, well, I'm, I'll ask this guy. He's like the, you know, the shadiest dude in my school <laughs> that I know of. And he literally looked at me like, no, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? <laughs> no, I don't know how to get a, why? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just, I was asking for somebody just else, you know, <laughs> but I mean, it, you know, again, I, like I was far, far, far from uh, a tough guy, but I, but I, I, I probably wanted to be a tough guy and I probably ran with some people that were certainly tougher than I was. And, and, um, and I put myself in a lot of situations that were super scary, you mm. know? Um, you know, probably into my, into my twenties. Were you self-destructive? Not intentionally, but like, you know, it was just a, um, it was maybe a little thrill seeking, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I had a much greater tolerance for risk than a lot of the other people that I knew, you know, looking back, is there like one, can you think of one particular story where it, that was the most dangerous? Cause I have things where I look back, I'm like, I cannot believe I did that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can think of, there's one specific time in my life where I thought, okay, you know, I mean, there's sort of an inherent confidence that comes with having never had anything tragic to you mm-hmm. happen to you. You know what I mean? Where you're like, I'm going to get out of this. I always get out of everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And there was a moment where I was like, I literally do not see how I get out of this situation. Like, it's not even... I don't even know what that would look like, let alone what the odds of it are. Uh, I was in the Bahamas. Uh, it was my freshman year of college. And uh, my parents, as I mentioned, had been divorced when I was 11. And this was one of those, like, my dad taking me on one of those, like, get to know you trips <laughs> for spring break, you know. 
And uh, we went down to uh, Paris Island in the Bahamas. And uh, every night, you know, we'd go out to dinner and we'd gamble. And then, you know, about 11 or midnight, my dad would go to sleep and I would, you know, get shit faced on casino headache beer and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, free flat beer that gives you a migraine. And, um, and uh, I was playing at the tables and there was a, a guy there who uh, seemed, you know, kind of put together, seemed, didn't seem shady, seemed like he had some money few years older than me and um i baited him like i went man i wish i had a joint right now and he was like oh you want to get high yeah absolutely he goes all right let's go and i'm thinking great i've managed to score some pot i'm gonna get stoned it's you know maybe one or two in the morning and uh oh god this story <laughs> so he uh he goes uh we go out front of the hotel and he gets in a cab and uh, I go, where are we going? He goes, I just need to go to my hotel real quick. And I was like, oh, cool. He's got the pot at his hotel. So we go to a hotel. He runs upstairs. He comes back down, gets in the cab, and gives the cab driver another address that wasn't my hotel. And I go, where are we going? He goes, well, we're going to get it. And I go, I thought you were just kidding. It. And he goes, no, 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 no. I, I just wanted to, I had to get my money or whatever. And I'm watching us leave all civilization <laughs> like we are driving into the asshole of the bahamas <laughs> you know we are literally half an hour away from where the casinos and right. the tourists are and we are driving into a place that looks like a demilitarized zone <laughs> like the cars on the street don't have wheels they're burnt out <laughs> uh we're driving by little tiny shacks that don't have front doors don't have windows uh it's two in the morning and there are children and i mean children everywhere you know and i don't see any other moving vehicles like that's it and he just looks at me and goes uh you should probably give me all your money because when we get out of the car they're gonna be all over you keep in mind i'm wearing like a blue blazer <laughs> and a pair of khakis you know what i mean and 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 uh and so i give him all my money and uh we get out is and it a lot you know, I mean, like 120 bucks on mm -hmm. me, 140. It wasn't a ton of money, but uh, but it, it was like kids' hands were just in my pockets. I mean, it was like when you see videos of like people walking through India and like just, you know, children's hands all mm -hmm. over you, please money, 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 money. I, it, it was insane. And he pulls me through this crowd of kids into this house. And uh, all of a sudden I realized like, oh, we're in a crack house. Oh, wow. And uh, there's a woman there with a do-rag on, and there were like three other guys that looked like they were made out of pipe cleaner. I mean, these guys, you know, were like 90, 100 pounds, you know? <laughs> and I couldn't understand a fucking word anybody was saying. Their accents were so thick. They were speaking English, but I literally could not understand. Like, the woman kept saying something to me, and everybody was laughing. Everybody was laughing. And I looked at this guy. I go, what is she saying? And he, and he goes, she wants to suck your dick. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's... Huh, no, <laughs> thank you. I, we're, we're all good here, you know? And uh, And so this guy goes back and knocks on this door he's gone for a couple minutes and um and when he comes back it, 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 it was like it was like something out of walking dead like people were just 
flocking to him. And he grabs me and pulls me into the bathroom and literally is like pushing them out, shoving them out. And he closes the door and puts his back against and they're pounding on the door. And like at this point, I'm going, what in the fuck have I done? You know? And he goes, uh, well, uh, I couldn't find any pot, but she did have some Coke. And I was like, oh, all right. I'm, you know, I've done Coke. But he meant crack, mm. you know? And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, in for a penny. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, you know, when in Rome. Uh, and so uh, we sat down in this bathroom and smoked like, you know, 140 bucks worth of crack, you know? And, uh, and it was just such a surreal experience because, you know, in a movie like that effect when there's foreshortening where they call it foreshortening where the background zooms up behind mm-hmm. a character who doesn't move in frame. It's really kind of trippy. Yeah. I had that moment where I'm high on crack in a Bahamian crack house with people pounding on the door and suddenly this clean cut guy looks at me and goes, you ever had a man suck your dick? And I just went, oh my fucking God, what have I done, dude? What have I done? And, uh, and uh, I, I went, ha, no, no, that's, you know, I'm not into that. And he was like, how do you know if you never had it done? And I was like, nah. And, um, and this is like, he while we're talking he's patting his pockets and then he's feeling his socks and stuff and he's getting increasingly agitated he was smoking too right and then he starts going where's the rest of the crack and i go what are you talking about and he goes where is it i go dude i don't i never had it you had it you know turn out your pockets and i like i had to turn out all my and like it just turned on a dime he was a different human being and uh, then he starts back on like, you know, sort of trying to seduce me. And it's but it's this time it's with this weird, like wild eyed edge where it just seems like he is on the verge of snapping, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I go, no, dude, like it's starting to get a little confrontational. I go, dude, come on, man. It's you know, it's not going to happen. And uh, he goes, uh, <laughs> he goes. Maybe I'm not asking. Jeez. And all oh of a God. sudden, like, and now I have my back to the bathroom door and, and this horrible soundtrack of dudes pounding on the door, you know, and, and I thought, I am sure that if he has any rocks left, those dudes would hold me down in a heartbeat. Like, I am outnumbered. I don't know. I'm 40 minutes from my hotel not like these guys have a phone. This was pre-cell phones. I had no, I mean, I was entirely dependent on this guy to get me out of here. And we now suddenly have a sexually adversarial relationship. <laughs> and uh, I looked on the bathroom <laughs> counter and there was a can opener, like a bottle opener, but it was the kind that came to like a point. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed it. And I put my back against the door and I went, well, it ain't going to be easy. 
And we had this moment where we were like staring at each other and it hung in the air. And it was like, uh, he, he, it was like he was weighing what he was going to do. Like he was trying to think about how, how he wanted to handle it, how hard this was going to, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it just, it was like a fever dream just went away and he went, I'm just fucking with you. And I just like, my immediate response was get me the fuck out of here right now, you know? And, uh, and like, you know, when we opened the door, they were all over us. We had to like push those guys away to get outside. And now it's like four in the morning and the streets are empty. And he's like, I'm like, how the fuck are we going to get out of here, dude? And he's pounding on the house next door, this window that's boarded up. And I'm like, there's nobody home, dude. And he's like, no, 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 they're in there. They're in there. And he's pounding, pounding, pounding. And I mean, like, it's 15, 20 minutes goes by. And I'm like, we got to get out of here. You know, I'm freaking out. Yeah. And by the way, also coming down now off of crack. And uh, and finally, you know, the door opens up like a, you know, the window opens up a little bit. Can't even see inside. And uh, he says, uh, this guy will drive you back to your hotel for 50 bucks. And I was like, done. <laughs> I didn't have any money on me. You know, absolutely. And the guy, you know, Took another 20 or 30 minutes for him to even get out of the house. And he, he drove a big, huge passenger tour bus. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, he drove, I don't know, tourist groups around town. So it was like a big ass, like, you know, one of those kind of buses. And like when he finally got in the car and turned it on and they were waiting for me to get on, like the adrenaline rush, like I, I went, I'm finally, I finally, th- think I might be able to get home now. And I go, hold on a second. And I turned around and fucking puked every, like I just turned around and was like, blah, 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 blah. and then just went like, okay, you know, and got on the bus. And, uh, and you know, this guy and it was totally silent for the whole, nobody was talking for that 45 minute, 40 minute ride home or whatever it was. And we pull up into the, uh, like the cul-de-sac or whatever little turnaround where, you know, all the hotels all bright and there's valet out front and I felt finally safe mm-hmm. and he opens up the door and I spill off the thing by myself and he goes, uh, hey man, where's my 50 bucks? And I was like, go fuck yourself, man. <laughs> I was like, you know, you want your money, come back here tomorrow, you know? And I knew I was leaving the next day or mm-hmm. whatever, two days later. So I knew I would never see him again and I was, you know, and so I, I went upstairs. I was sharing a room with my dad and now it's like almost dawn and I'm so emotionally drained and, you know, just going through this bizarre chemical come down. And uh, I went upstairs, snuck into the bedroom and I went into the bathroom and uh, I looked down and I was still holding the can opener. <laughs> wow. And I, I like when I opened up my hand, like it was kind of locked, like I had to almost pry it open and the can opener was so uh like have you ever carried a heavy grocery bag and it cuts those deep lines yeah. and you it was uh it was like you know you could see like the, the impression outline, of it you yeah. know the impression of it and oh my god i sat there and literally just wept like i just had that like that was almost the whole McGillicuddy right there you know that was that was fucking scary so many questions. Was the guy really just fucking with you? No, I think he I think he 
I think he was weighing whether or not he wanted to go through a physical struggle and how, you know, what was, was he going to be able to punk me? Was I going to give it up or was he going to have to fight? And, you know, is it going to be worth it? And, and do you think from the beginning he was into you? Like, is that yeah. why? Okay. So yeah, that was his, I think his plan I think, potentially yeah, from I the think beginning. he was like, I'm going to take this little white boy over to the other side of town and get him all cracked up and I'm going to fuck him, you know? And I was like, how could I miss this? You know, <laughs> how could I miss this? Well, you were drunk. Yeah, to drunk, begin with, but right? like, no, I mean. But also young. Yeah, I was 20. I was 20. Um, I think 20, mm-hmm. 19, 20, 20, probably. But, um, oh, dude, whew, I still think about that. Like, that was like, a, that was, you know, <laughs> that's not a, uh, story that you trot out at dinner with your wife's friends like hey anybody else ever almost get raped in a bahamian crack house that's a needle off the record moment you know and uh but yeah i mean that was you know stories of a misspent youth what was your relationship with your dad like um my dad and i have a uh very good relationship now but my dad was very singular of purpose Mm-hmm. When uh when he was younger, he, you know, we grew up nothing alike. You know, my dad's father, I mean, I my dad was an executive at IBM. You know, I grew up in Connecticut. And when I wanted new shoes, we got new shoes. And, you know, my house had a pool. It mm-hmm. wasn't like we weren't crazy wealthy, but like we grew up upper middle class. And that was, I lived, now I can see, an entitled life. My dad's father was a fucking coal miner, you know, and uh, and uh, a depression era baby. And so, uh, you know, my dad didn't have a safety net. There was nobody helping him. And he had, you know, uh, four sons very early in life. I came much later. But like, you know, so when he was like 22, he had like a wife, two kids and one on the way. Like it was just, it was shit got real, real fast for him. So he just, all he wanted to do is work and make money, work and make money. So he just wasn't around a whole lot. And then, you know, he was a very driven a type personality. And I was sort of under the care of a woman who was an artist and very sort of ethereal and emotional and not real together. So, uh, you know, when he rode into town, it was kind of like, you know, the sheriff's coming and you just, you know, the last thing you wanted was to be standing tall before the man, you mm-hmm. know, going over your grades or some shit because he just, you know. So, and of course, I decided I wanted to go into, you know, performing when I was very young and my, my father just hated that idea. And uh, uh, so I think I was just afraid of him and and just, you know, always seeking a uh, validation that was not coming, you know? Do you think that drove you towards show business? No, I mean, I just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I was the youngest and probably very spoiled and, uh, you know, narcissistic. And I just liked attention and I liked performing. I liked, I liked the escape. I liked being able to make people laugh and sort of experience joy through the eyes of, the audience Mm -hmm. you know um and uh and that sense of escape 
And um, so, uh, and, you know, I was just always not doing well in school, which was really all my father wanted out of. Like, you know, the only currency <laughs> that you had to gain my father's, uh, you know, sort of bona fides uh, was something that I just couldn't have been worse at. And uh, so, yeah, when I dropped out of college to do stand up, it was not a popular decision in my home. And, um, and you it, went you know, to BU, right? Which is a good school. It was a good school. Yeah. My father was actually on the board of regents for public education of Massachusetts when I dropped out of BU. Mm. He was like one of Dukakis's advisors, you know, um, who's, you know, prominent in the area. And, I, and, and, and to my dad, who grew up in Arkansas, son of a coal miner, you know, doing stand up was like saying, uh, that, you know, I was going to guess weights for a living or something. You know what I mean? It was like, it was, you know, spinning the wheel, step right up. Like it just didn't seem real to him. And, and, and his, you know, again, I go back to that idea. Like nobody ever denied me anything. It was in their power to give. If my dad was a hammer, his father was a fucking wrecking ball, you know? So it's just all about evolution. And, uh, you know, the irony is, I genuinely consider my father to be my father's 83 now. I consider him to be one of my best friends. And uh but you know, I was a defiant kid and I wasn't going to do what he wanted and he he didn't know how to talk sense into me and we just didn't speak the same language really, you mm-hmm. know. Um Yeah, and he, you know, he his way of making a point was uh, you know, emotional sort of blunt force trauma. Like it was when I, when I, well, I, you know, I feel like this is turning into like an episode of, you know, like Dr. Drew's going to come out, but, um, <laughs> but, but like, you know, I remember like a Christmas dinner where my dad was really Christmas dinner with my girlfriend from college and, 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 you know, my brothers and their wives or, or long-term girlfriends. And, you know, my dad let me have it, dude. He was like, you know, look around my house. You see the art on the walls. You see the new cars in the driveway. You're never going to own anything like it as long as you live. You're never going to drive a new car. You're you're never going to own your own home. Uh, I've seen the entire world. You're never going to leave the country. This you know. was punishing you for dropping out of college? Well, it not wasn't was punishing. It? it was just sort of like a scared straight conversation. Okay. It was, you know, I had been but out this, of school for gotcha. two or three years. And it was like, you know, it was like, you know. You're, I just want you to know the kind of life you're choosing for yourself, Jeez. you know, and, and, uh, and, and the, and, and I, the only reason I mention it is, uh, and I mean this, like he did it out of love. Like he right, was he scared for me and he was trying to scare me. He was trying to show me, you know, and it's not like he's wrong. It's a horrible business, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and, uh, he d- he wanted the best for me and the irony is that I, it it steeled my resolve mm-hmm. like I, that moment i can remember looking at him and it was just like tumblers clicking in my head and i was like i will fucking die before i let you be right like it is now a steel cage death match between you and i and um and I think it was, and honest, honestly, I think it was a bit of a turning point in my career because I became much more serious about my career after that because it was like, I can't afford 
to fuck around. I cannot, I cannot come back to my dad with my tail between my legs at 29 and be like, can I go back to college? And, you know, it was like, there's the only way out is through, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, uh, yeah. So what happened? Like, what was going on for you career-wise at that point? And then what happened I had next? just been, you know, I was just starting to get past at the good clubs in New York City. You know, I felt like I was fucking king of the world. You know, I'm working at the Boston Comedy Club. I got past a Catch a Rising Star, you know, at the comic strip and, you know, uh, Caroline's. And I'm, you know, doing, you know, 10 or 15 shows a week. But, you know, doing 10 or 15 shows a week to make maybe 250, 275. I mean, you were getting paid 10, 20 bucks a set, maybe Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 on the weekends, a hundred if you emceed, but you know, it wasn't, it was, it was, I just knew that like, I felt it wasn't success by his standards, you know? But I had like, I was like, things are going so well. I got like three or four road gigs on the, on the books for this year. And, you know, to him, it was like, you know, I remember him going through my book and being like, January, week of January 2nd, nothing. Week of January 9th, nothing. We could, you know, and then he, you know, February 14th, four days of work, $600. Next week, nothing. You know, and it was like, when you looked at it like that, I was like, oh God, man. But, you know. But it was like a very heady time for me because the the I mean I, I'm sort of a, a misfit in my generation of standups because I left the standup world for so long when mm-hmm. I was doing TV, but like the guys that I started out with, man, you know, I, like I was coming up with guys that like you know we were sort of the generation that was right behind the SNL guys like David Spade and Sandler and, and Chris Rock. We were but but it was. You know, Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle and Dave Attell and, you know, uh, Kevin Brennan, Neil Brennan, uh, you know, Sarah Silverman, uh, Joe Rogan, Greg Fitzsimmons. Like, you know, it was like, you know, I had this sort of prescient moment sitting in the comedy store where I realized like, man, you know. The, the voice of comedy within a culture is extremely important. You know, there, there was a huge boom in the entertainment industry during the Great Depression because people just needed it, mm-hmm. you know? And, and like, I just had that moment where I was like, oh my God, the, like, we are all, we're all in our early 20s. We're all making nothing. We're, co- you know, we're, we're doing sets for 20 bucks and free falafel at the comedy cellar. And, and yet these are the guys and girls that will go on to describe the face of comedy in this culture. These are the people that are going to write the sitcoms, star in the sitcoms, write the movies, star in the movies. And that felt important to me, mm-hmm. you know, but there was just no way to be able to communicate that to anybody who, you know, to anybody else. It looked like we were, you know, just a bunch of grubby young gypsies, you know. <laughs> um. What felt like your first big break? Was it Talk, talk Soup? Soup? Yeah. Okay. And did you move out to LA for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had done a failed pilot. It's funny, I had done a failed pilot for a dating game show on MTV. <laughs> and uh, when it didn't get picked up, I was so crushed, man. I was so crushed. And I remember talking to my mom and saying, oh, it's just disastrous. And she was like, honey, you're so young. You're just starting out. And uh, and I was like, you don't understand. Like, there are guys 
that never get the opportunity to do a pilot in their entire career. And, and I did, and it didn't go. And there's no guarantee I will ever get back there again. And like <clears throat> six months later, I got talk soup. And, and if I had gotten that shitty game show mm-hmm. pilot, I would have missed out on the opportunity to have this like incredible vehicle, not just for performance, but just for learning. I mean, it was such, you just learn, I learned so much about how to make and write television and my voice, you know, it forced you to be prolific. It was a daily show. And um, so that was, it all changed for me in 95, January 2nd, 1995. And was that just something that you were called in to audition for? Yeah, I auditioned for everybody. Everyone that I knew auditioned for it. I mean, they were looking at everybody. And, uh, and I remember... Greg Kinnear was the host first, right? Mm-hmm. He and I was a helped. fan of the show. Okay. Like, I would watch it. You know, I wasn't... I, so when I got the opportunity to audition for it, I was like, oh, dude, I love this show. And I remember coming home from the audition and telling my girlfriend at the time, dude, I, I like, I think I did really good. I mean, I really think I nailed it, you know? And, and, and if they would ever just let a nobody do that show, <laughs> I mean, that's like the kind of show, like, you know, obviously I'm not famous. I'm not going to get it, but, but like, that's the kind of show I really think I could do, you know? And, uh, like eight months went by. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I just assumed, you know, you'd every once in a while you'd hear like, no, I think they gave, they cast somebody in that. And, <laughs> But, you know, there was never an announcement. And then I got the phone call saying, uh, hey, they, you, you got a call back. And I was like, what? I thought that was over. They're like, no, they, they said they really liked you. And I was like, all right. And I remember coming home from the call back and going, dude, I, I, I think I did even better at the call back. Like, mm-hmm. I, I stuck my landing like a little Yugoslavian gymnast on that, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and it was the only time in my entire life that I've ever been told the thing I did in an audition that got me the job. My executive producer, Alex Duda, um, said, do you want to know what made me pull you out of the pilot tapes? Uh, we, we, you know, you were reading copy and they obviously they wanted you to improvise. And I was reading like some host copy and then uh, there was like a tease coming up on Jerry Springer, my grandma's a thief. And... Um, and I just threw in the phrase, I went, uh, not not my grandma personally, my grandma's on the grift, which is a totally different form of short con altogether. <laughs> and and she was like, the use of the words grift and short con in a sentence coming out of your dorky mouth <laughs> were just so specific, you know, co- you know, comedies in the details or whatever. And, I, and it's the only time in my life that I've ever really known what got or lost me a job, mm-hmm. you know, but um so yeah, and then uh, and then like you know months went by after the second audition. I didn't hear anything, and then I got a. I was sitting on my couch in my underwear watching Monday Night Football, and I got a phone call at like seven thirty at night saying, "Can you be in L.A. on Wednesday and and guest host the weekend edition?" I was like, "Yeah," I guest hosted three or four times, and then took over in January. Nice. Hmm. That must have been a pretty heady time. It was amazing. It was amazing. I just had lunch with like you know if you're an old school talk soup fan, all the guys that you saw in the sketches, all the crew guys, you know, Tom, Alan, Fred. I just had lunch with those guys. And, uh, you know, I actually got like really emotional when I saw them. I got choked up because, you know, I feel like we're brothers in a weird way. It was like going to college with Mm -hmm. people, you know. We spent four years together. They drank my beer. They smoked my pot. They slept on my couch. They puked in my bathroom, you know. (laughs) We had a great time. And, uh, 
you know, the one thing that I always remember during that era was people going, are you guys having as much fun as it looks like you're having? And I was like, dude, we're having so much more fun than you can see because you can't see all the shit that's going on during commercial breaks. And, you know, it really was like, I think it, in a weird way, it almost ruined me because no job will ever be that fun again. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but there was no supervision, like nothing, nothing. I did over 1,100 episodes. I never had a note session. That's crazy. Never. Four and a half years. Nobody ever sat me down and like told me I couldn't do something. We showed our scripts to our executive producer. That was it. We never got yelled at. Nobody ever chastised us about ratings or anything. And then after Alex Duda left, I think, you know, three and a half years in or whatever, three years in, I was able to negotiate uh, uh, being the executive producer. And then we didn't show a script to anybody. Like we just went and taped it. They were just happy that we were handing them a tape and going, this is a half an hour you can air mm -hmm. this. You know, They were like airing Talk Soup four <laughs> times a day. They only had like three shows. Right. Yeah, for, list for young listeners who might not be familiar with Talk Soup, it was a show that ran for years on E! and ultimately <clears throat> excuse me, morphed into The Soup with Joel McHale. But it was a huge cultural force, very funny. Um, and how would you describe it? Like, was a... a it was YouTube before YouTube. Yeah. It was clips of talk shows. Yeah. But it was like, it was, it, 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 in my experience, it was like the first viral video show. Mm -hmm. Because the, it was the, watchable. it was the, it was, bite-sized programming the clips were all about a minute long and it was richard bay and jerry springer and jenny jones and mike and matt i mean all these like you know 90s you know transvestite midgets and fights and you know all that kind of stuff and oh my god you know i didn't know you were a man you know <laughs> like that kind of and it was just it, it was uh yeah, and it was viewership through attrition. Like, it was just always on. Mm -hmm. You know, you just couldn't miss it. And um, so, yeah, I think it was sort of the first real clip show. So why did... You were there for four years? Four and a half years. Why'd you leave? Money. Money. I mean, it wasn't... Well, here... This is the truth. I mean, a couple things. Um, you know, there, this was... E was not E what you see now, mm -hmm. you know? Um you know, at the, uh, you know, the soup had like a full staff of writers, guild writers, whatever there, I don't know how many there were, eight guys, I don't know, you know, writers guild. We had three people cranking out two and a half hours of TV a week. I mean, it was just bare bones. Right. And, um, and there was no money, but it was so much fun. It was so much fun. But, you know, it was just, uh, E had just lost Greg Kinnear, and so they were militant about their contracts. I wasn't allowed to do anything else. Oh, wow. Anything else. I mean, I got some commercial success, uh, but I couldn't, you know, Disney offered me a sitcom. They wouldn't let me do it. You know, there was no way to like, you had to leave to monetize that success. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making that much more money than I'd been making as a comic, you know? And... um it was also at the end of my tenure was when, you know, 
<laughs> nobody will remember this but me, but like William Bennett was the uh, part of the FCC crackdown on the airwaves. Like they were tightening up. They, they didn't want to see the violence in daytime television and the talk shows. And those talk shows, you know, Jenny Jones had that tragic case where right. uh, somebody murdered somebody after uh, a show. And all of a sudden, like, there was just sort of a tone of like, okay, enough. And there, uh, the, the boom died, you know, they were, they were dying. The talk shows were dying off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, at the same time we had done a live show in Chicago in January. And, uh, and it was such a, uh, like an incomparable experience. We did it at the Chicago theater you know, it was the same theater that Letterman and Leno use, you know, when they were there. And uh, we packed the place. Like, there were people lined up around the block, you know, 10 hours before showtime. It was insane. You know, stomping their feet and chanting my name. And <laughs> I remember backstage, somebody looked at me and goes, dude, we're Aerosmith. Like, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, and we walked out on stage. We got this giant standing ovation. And I was like, I remember thinking, it's never going to be better than it is right now. And and um, I my contract was coming up, and I had you know they had given me the opportunity to extend, and I was like, I don't know, I just don't want to be the guy that rides the show into the ground, you know. And in retrospect, I probably should have stayed. I took a development deal, and you know, went to ABC, and my pilot didn't get picked up, and I rattled around in cable for a while before. You know, I found success again. I had a couple of short-lived things, but, but, um, success again being Wipeout or something before that. Yeah, I mean, I you know, like I got a show. Like I said, I had a season of a show on Spike TV. I, I did okay. a show on uh, on TV Guide for a while, which was funny. I used to tell people I had two thirds of a television show because the lower third was the banner, letting <laughs> you know all the better shit on other channels <laughs> that you should be watching instead. Um, you know, I was working. I constantly mm -hmm. worked. I was doing, you know, development deal didn't go, development deal didn't go, pilot dinner, short-lived show, whatever. I was making money. But, you know, it wasn't until Wipeout where I felt like, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, Wipeout was, you know, we had like an audience that I'm sure, who knows? I mean, you know, in a season of Wipeout, more people probably saw me in four and a half, than in four and a half years on, on uh, Talk Soup. But it's, the irony is peop more people you know, stop me for talk soup today than mm -hmm. wipe out. Interesting. Know? Yeah. It was your, that's your iconic role, I guess. Well, that might be a little grandiose. I mean, it was just, it's, you know, I think it was a weird, t I think that's a show that if you were watching TV, then it had a little place in your heart because mm -hmm. the, I think at our best, you could say we were the only people doing what we were doing on television. If you liked what we were doing, you had to come to us because we were the only people that were doing it. That kind of like, let's put on a show in the barn. My mom made costumes. You know, I, all the sketches were so low budget and it was so self-deprecating and we didn't take ourselves seriously. And it was also sort of weird and surreal and subversive and you know, it just was uh, the lunatics running the asylum a little bit. And I don't think TV will ever be like that again. I don't think anybody will ever have the opportunity to be on a daily television show with as little oversight as we had, you know. Do you really think you should have stayed? Uh, you know, only in the sense, not creatively. Like, I don't, I don't, I had done it for four and a half years, uh, you know, over 1,100 episodes. 
there's only so many Jerry Springer jokes <laughs> that you can write, you know? I mean, Wipeout was the best thing that's ever happened to my family. We did seven seasons. Two of those seasons, we did a winter and summer version. One of them, we did winter, spring, and summer. So it was almost like nine seasons. You know, how many soul-crushing puns can you write for 11-year-olds? You know, it was <laughs> like, I, I would have loved to have had another season, but when they said we're not coming back, I was like, ha, okay, you know. But, uh, you know, uh, professionally and, and and financially, you know, it was like, oh, well, you look back and go, you know, the, the weird thing is I had the offer to do America's Funniest mm. when I left Talk Soup and I said no. And it was like, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Why'd you say no? I have a friend, <clears throat> Jeff knows. Actually, someone who's on the the panel show, my friend Jen, is obsessed with that show. Obsessed. That's, that's her dream job. Here's the irony. Uh, it, it came back around to bite me because, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is in bad taste to tell a story or not, but I... Um, I, I think it's fine. I love, I love Talk Soup. And uh, my manager called... I remember I was coming back from a, an audition. My manager called me and goes, you're not going to believe this, but they just offered you a million dollars a year to host America's Funniest. And... Uh, because you don't even have to take a meeting with them, you know. You just and I was like, "Oh my god, that's hilarious!" Thank them so much for me. I'm I'm not gonna do it. And uh, you gotta remember, man, that was Bob Saget. You know, that was corny laugh tracks mm -hmm. and grown punchlines and puns. I was coming off of the show where. You know, we were doing drag and, do, you know, doing these weird, they, surreal kind of S, uh, SCTV kind of conceptual sketches. Like it's it interesting was, that they wanted you for it. I mean, it almost makes me wonder, did they want someone to take it in a snarkier direction? I don't, I don't know what. I, all direction. I know was at the time, and, and, and look, I, you know, please understand that I don't mean this disrespectfully, but like Bob Saget... And America's Funniest Home Videos was like the carrot top of television. Mm -hmm. Like it was not it what respected. you think of today. It was the antithesis. It was like, oh, God. It was lowest to common me, denominator. it felt like I would be. And here I am like coming off of this show for stoners and college kids. And, you know, it was the exact they feel polar like opposite of what my creative voice was at the time. And like to you'd be selling out. That's what it was. And for me, it was not even a decision. Like, it was like, you can't buy my brand. I mean, I didn't think of it this way. It's not like I had a brand. But I'm saying, like, it's that's not what I do, you know? And you can't just... That's a lot of money to make, but not if it's the last money in your career. If the show gets canceled next year and right. you're the guy that screwed up what everybody thinks of you by doing the polar opposite mm. for money, how are you going to walk into a comedy club like... And and maybe I'm reading too much into it, and I'm sure everybody listening would be like, "You're an idiot. You should have taken it." And no, I'm sure it's a lot I'd, of integrity. It's it was it wasn't even thank you, but it wasn't in it was it was just a knee jerk gut instinct. Like it wasn't like I went, "I'm better than that." I just went, "It's that's just not for me." And the money was not enough to sway me. You know, <laughs> I wish it was because I'd probably drive a much nicer car now. <laughs> but uh, I said no. And I never even really looked back on it. And, you know, my agency dropped me. Like they were. Because of that decision? Yeah. yeah. Wow. They were furious. And uh, a great moment of, um, uh, of uh, years later, uh, I, I, uh, I found out that 
my agent at the time uh, or someone from my agency was at a party with Steven Soderbergh, who I happen to have a project with right now. And, uh, and he, he, uh, the agent was talking about how I turned down a million dollars a year to host America's Funniest and what an idiot I was, you know, uh, how John Henson's career never recovered from turning down a million dollars a year to host America's Funniest. And Soderbergh goes, uh, he turned down a million dollars a year. And the guy goes, yeah, can you fucking believe that? And, uh, and Soderbergh goes, that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I was when I heard that, I was like, fuck yes, you know? And, uh, and, you know, look, uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't be working with him today if I had said yes. Right. You know, uh, you, you make your decisions and you can't live your life looking backwards. The irony is when I got off of Wipeout, Tom Bergeron was stepping down and I was like, that's my fucking job. <laughs> this is what I do now. You know, I am, I am that guy. I am a middle-aged guy who just did family-friendly comedy on the same fucking network for that same audience. There is no one in this industry that can do this job better than I can. Like, I knew it in my gut. I was like, that's me, bro. And I had to fight tooth and nail just to get a meeting with Vindabona. He was like, nope. Because you had turned them down I don't before, know. We never, we never discussed it. I think he had some concerns about me going right from Wipeout into that. And, you know, I think he also worried that maybe I might be too not family friendly enough. Mm -hmm. That maybe I was a little, you know. But uh, anyway, I, I got the opportunity to screen test. And I walked out thinking, well, dude, if I, you know, if I don't get it off of that, and I was never going to get it. And they went with Alfonso Ribeiro. And I was like, isn't that funny, man? I, you know, they wanted me and I didn't want them. And then I wanted them and they didn't want me. You know, one good turn deserves another. <laughs> so Vin got, Vin got the last laugh there. Can you say anything about what your project with Soderbergh is? Sure. Um, uh, years ago, my, one of my best friends from high school is an FBI agent. And uh, he was working in organized crime. And he, uh, he came up to me once and he was like... Uh, he goes, dude, I'm working with this guy. It's an undercover agent. He's like the greatest undercover agent in the history of the Bureau. And I just thought it was figure of speech, you know, hyperbole. But no, this guy is literally in the words of the FBI. He is the greatest undercover agent in the history of the Bureau. He led as many as six different identities simultaneously, speaking different languages, portraying different nationalities. Wow. And I got to know this guy. And uh, um, his name's Jack Garcia. And... Um, and I was listening to him tell stories. And this guy has forgotten more amazing shit than you or I would live in hmm. 10 lifetimes, you know. And uh, I, I was like, dude, I think we can make a project. Like, we can make a movie out of your life. And uh, <laughs> Johnny, I love you. You're the guy that makes funny faces on TV. What do you know <laughs> from making a movie? And, you know, he was right. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. But I wrote up an overview of the story and through uh, Jules Asner, who I worked with at E! Entertainment Television, who's married to Stephen, I was able to, I said, would you please give this to Stephen? I'm sorry. I know it's in bad taste to ask you to do this, but I can't get it to anybody any other way. And she goes, all right, I'll, I'm going to pass it on to him, but don't ever expect to hear back from him. 
And then like months later, he called and was like, can you be in New York day after tomorrow? And we, we sat down, we had a meeting and, uh, you know, Jack had gotten it. Jack was on the a feature story on 60 minutes. He got a book deal. It became a New York times bestseller a book called making Jack Falcone. And, um, Soderbergh, we had like a two hour meeting and he went, all right, I'll do it. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and he goes, yeah, I'm going to put you I'm in a meeting with these guys from, uh, you know, in L.A. that I know, uh, Michael Schamberg, Stacey Scher, double feature films or, you know, Pulp Fiction, Aaron Brockovich. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> you know, and that was like 10 years ago. And we 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 had uh, uh, we were going to do it as a film. And Benicio del Toro is going to star in it because it, the character is a Cuban immigrant who can pass for either Italian or Latin and speak fluent Spanish. So he was the perfect character, transformative actor that could play six different parts. But we were never able to get financing. It started right around 2008 when the you know market crashed mm-hmm. and film financing changed. And it was just like building a card house. You get a director, you get a co-star, and you'd be cast in that third co-star role, and then you'd lose your director. Mm-hmm. And then you'd, you know, then you'd lose this. You know, it was just like we could never get it done. And then after like Seven years of that process, uh, I was I was like, maybe we should make this a one-hour cable drama. And it happened to be right when Soderbergh was moving into television, doing The Nick. He did Behind the Candelabra, you know, won the Emmy for Best uh, Director in, in TV, um, the Emmy. And uh, and he was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So we... Um, that's our project. We, we, Peter Bushman, um, or Buckman, sorry, uh, Peter Buckman, who, who did the Che movies for, uh, for Soderbergh wrote the script. And, um, and so, uh, we're just getting ready to, it took years to rework all the contracts and, um, but we're, uh, we're in the process now of, uh, negotiating with an actor and, um, getting ready to take that out and try to sell it as a one hour cable drama. That is very exciting. Yeah. I mean, it would be a total departure, you know, obviously it's not comedy, it's true crime and, uh, a one hour drama. I mean, it's like I go into these meetings and you could see the look on people's faces when they're like, Hey, what's the talk soup guy doing? Here? You know what I mean? Like I'm waiting for executives to just be like black two sugars, you know, and hand me a cup. You know what I mean? Like they have no idea, but it's, uh, it's been an incredible process to, to learn development through through working with people like Michael and Stacy and Steve and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Very cool. Let's take some questions from listeners, but first I want to say to you guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. Thank you for your Amazon support. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe, iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen. Uh, leave us a comment. That would be great. Five stars is my favorite number that helps out the show too. And also I'm on Patreon. Patreon is sort of like Kickstarter, but you can support artists, podcasters in an ongoing monthly basis. There's different reward levels. So you can get extra bonus episodes a month. You can get an exclusive video live stream that's interactive. Um, there's a level where you get uh, merchandise in the mail, all sorts of fun stuff. Check that out. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. And uh, let's see what the listeners want to know. When we ask, we send them in They're wondering how you have been So thanks so much for answering These questions from our fans I feel like I owe you a $90 session fee after this Like, <laughs> We're going to start with this next week We're going to pick up here And uh, I want to get back into some of those dreams you had 
To be continued. I'm yeah. a therapist who would always say. Yeah. To, oh, that's the worst. <laughs> that's, <laughs> to be con- that's the being like, that's if you're a hack therapist, <laughs> that's what you close she would have her with. Pad, oh, she'd have her, uh, her pad and, and she would go, to be continued. Close <laughs> it. Um, okay. Ray Morgan says, whatever happened to Skunk Boy? Oh. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's the name of my company, Skunk Boy Inc. Um, that was my nickname on Talk Soup because I had I had a, I grew up with a birthmark, a streak of white hair on the right side of my head. But now I'm gray, so you can't even really see it. You got to really focus. You camouflage now. Yeah, it's like now I'm Skunk Man. It's taken over <laughs> the whole head. It's annexed my entire head. I'm hoping that as I get older, there's a crossfade, and then that spot turns brown. But no, oh, like, you that'd know. be so cool. What causes, do you know medically, like what causes someone to have just You know, people of- would say it's vitiligo. I mean, all it really is is a an, a loss of pigment in mm-hmm. that part of my skin. But I don't have it anywhere else, you know, so I don't know that it is vitiligo because I think that's maybe something that... I think of that as more patchy. Right. And, and this on the is skin, literally just on my scalp. There's like a spot with no pigment and the hair grows out snow white. And it's been that way from the day I was born. So, um, yeah, bro. Sorry, I went gray. <laughs> uh, let's see. The Great One says, did you watch the show, Talk Soup, after you left? If so, excluding yourself, do you have a favorite Talk Soup host? <laughs> um, you know, I, I would have to say, in in all honesty, I didn't watch the show. Not out of any sense of bitterness, but just um, I didn't watch much television. You know what I mean? Um, uh I was very, I knew Aisha Tyler very well. Um, uh, I did not know, Hal is the guy who took over for me, and I did not know Hal. Um, and uh, he wasn't, I don't think, there that long. But Aisha I knew well and uh, really rooted for her to get the job. I thought it was really a good idea for them to go with somebody who was completely incomparable to previous hosts. Mm-hmm. Um uh, obviously, uh, Joel had his own success and that was a, a much different show. Uh, I also just, I've met Joel a couple of times and I found him to be a remarkably, uh, charming, uh, generous guy. Um, but it, the truth is the only one that I was ever really a fan of was Greg Kinnear. Cause I, I, I really grew up loving him and, and the show. And that's the only one I've never met. <laughs> I've never, oh, wow. never met him. Uh, Luke would like to know, do you know what happened to the kid who got the John Henson Project tattoo? Oh, fuck. Oh, God. So I had this show on Spike TV called The John Henson Project, and we we did an episode where we asked uh, if someone would be willing to get a tattoo of the logo live during the show. And uh, this kid, oh, Jesus, this kid. I wonder if I have, should we call him? Sure. I, might have his, I, think, I, I think I might have his number. Uh, Tyler... Do so tell his... what was the premise of the John Henson oh, project? Oh my god, I have his number. So the uh, it was so th- this was I sold a show to Spike TV um and it was just meant to be like a, a sort of pop culture talk show, mm-hmm. you know. Um and uh between me selling it and the show hitting the air, they uh, became the first network for men. <laughs> so they were like, oh, so listen, it needs to be like sort of like the man show now. And I was like, come again? <laughs> you know, that's what? <laughs> and uh, and they were like, yeah, but like not 
as far as the man show goes, but you know, and I was like, so you want me to be the diet man show? Because that exists and they do it really fucking well, you know? So it was just this ill-fated, it was a, it was like a live talk show with no audience where we were jamming this man angle down. And, um, but some of the stuff we did was so, so funny. Oh my God, we did some stuff that was... Did a commercial parody for rich, creamy man butter from Morningwood Farms that was <laughs> made me just so happy. Um, and I mean, shot it on, you know, 32 millimeter film. Like it was beautiful. Uh, you know, some really, really great bits. Um, but, uh, so we, we, one of them was we had this kid <laughs> come on the show to get a tattoo. And, uh, he, uh, this kid had, uh, cause we had hundreds of people that were willing to do it. And we picked this kid. We flew him in from, I think, Nebraska. He had pierced his own nipples. Oh, ow. As you, as, as you will. As one does. Um, and, uh, he had, um, given himself a Prince Albert. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wrap your head around that, folks. I can't. Google it if you haven't. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it and picture doing it to yourself. It's and a then piercing. here's the other thing: he had taken a razor blade. Oh, and I don't want to know. Bifurcated his own tongue. Oh. So uh, we honestly felt at this point that we were helping turn his life around. Yeah, you're at this point, I thought a tattoo hook. was was <laughs> like a step in the right direction. That's for him. conformity. So he came on the show and he got a. Big fucking John Henson uh, project logo uh, on his back, and four days later the show was canceled. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, years later, years later, I was in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was eating like a fucking Cracker Barrel or something. And a woman came up to me and goes, uh, "Is your name John Henson?" And I go, "Yeah, why?" And she goes. My brother has your name <laughs> tattooed on his back. And I went, oh, yeah, How, how's he doing? <laughs> and she was like, not good, not good. Dro- dropped out of college. I think he's dealing drugs or some shit like that. Um, and I have his number here. I don't know if it'll work. Should we call him? Sure. Let's see. Let's do it. Let's see how he's been. Shit, now he's going to have my number. I'm going to hold that up to the phone. I mean, hold it up to the microphone. I'm actually nervous. Just got to have covered that tattoo up. The anticipation is killing me. I know. This is my voicemail. You know what to do. Oh, yes. So you're relieved. That was a brush with death right there. <laughs> Were you going to leave a voicemail? I don't... I mean... I was hoping you would if we had the opportunity. I hope he's had that tattoo covered up, for God's sake. I, if it's still there... Now I got to look out. I got to... like. Man, I might have out. to contact him. Yeah. How many years ago was this? Uh, this would have been 2003. He's had ample time. Yeah. I've had tattoos covered up. I'm sure he has. I I'm love looking me at the tattoos. What was your most embarrassing tattoo that you had covered? The only one that I've ever had covered. I had a registered trademark symbol on my ankle. It's the first <laughs> tattoo I ever got. Um, but I just got a tattoo Sunday. I love them. What'd you get? Got the last two lines of a W.B. Yeats poem called uh, The Song of Wandering Angus. Mm, what are the last two lines? Uh, the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. 
It's about uh, a man that sees uh, an apparition of a woman and spends the rest of his life looking for her, you know, and it ends like, though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find where she has gone and kiss her lips and hold her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. And I sort of think of that as like the idea that the pursuit of a of an ideal, whether that's true love or artistic expression or whatever it is, you know, it's unattainable, but the pursuit of it is what gives your life meaning. Very Gatsby. You. Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where'd you get this tattoo? Cause I'm on not my, seeing it. On my chest. Gotcha. Let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought of. Thank you for rocking out to that song, too. Yeah, I got into it, man. So this is where people write in with things they think or things they do, and they wonder, is it just me? Is it everyone? And we let them know if we also do this. Pipernicus says, pronounce the word pianist with an emphasis on the A, like in piano, so it doesn't sound like I'm saying penis. Pianist. Pianist. Yeah, I guess I said it more like penis. Pianist. Pianist. You know the old joke? My father just told me this joke. You know the, the old joke? A guy... Guy's sitting in a bar, and a fellow walks in, comes out, takes out this bag, and out of the bag, he takes a little, tiny piano. And he pulls out a little, tiny man who sits at the piano and starts playing. He goes, where'd you get this? He goes, oh, I found this this uh, little lantern, and I, I rubbed it, and I make a wish, you know? He goes, I can make a wish? Yeah, make a wish for anything you want. He goes, all right, I want a million bucks. And a second later, there's a big gust of wind and the door opens and in pour a million ducks because <laughs> i didn't say a million ducks i said a million bucks the guy goes do you think i asked for a foot-long pianist <laughs> <laughs> i like that one um and in general i just i think i just don't say the word very often i would just say piano player <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's, that's how you run. steer yeah. clear of it, yeah. Lee Brun says, oh, this is a specifically a South Dakota just mirror, everyone. I would rather have 30 degree below zero with no wind than 20 above but windy. Uh, you know what? I'd rather have a ticket out of fucking South Dakota because <laughs> yeah. you don't have to stay there. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Ashley Bloodworth says, several unassuming adjectives have been ruined for me by donald trump terrific huge etc tremendous is the one i associate most with him yeah and huge you can i mean it's as long as you put an h on it i don't think of him yes you know he doesn't own that one but tremendous bigly great i think he's saying big league but yeah anyway um fuck him okay it's just the worst it really is every day it's a new Just waking up to like the, uh, oh, wait, he just vanished the data on climate change. You can do that. You can just fucking just I dream of genie and away goes climate change info. I just the uh, Jeff and I were talking about this before the show. Like, how is science and truth a partisan issue? Like, how can he put a gag order on the well? So 
what just what I just saw before we started recording was a story that came out a few hours before we started saying a headline saying that uh, before the EPA can release information to the public, it has to be looked at by a political group of people. That's just fucking ridiculous. This whole idea. Well, there's no consensus. It's like, why? Because you're able to buy one fucking group of scientists who work for the coal industry to dissent. <laughs> so therefore, there's no consensus. Does everyone need to agree? It's not enough to have 1,600 scientists <laughs> all agree, you know? That's just Barf. disgusting. But more importantly, Sooner Magic says, when I put a grocery item I don't want back on a random shelf or aisle, I flee the scene like a criminal. I actually just did this. I don't know where Daniel and I were. Oh, I know where we were. We were at the container store, a store that aggravates me to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's just so proud. What do they ship the stuff in the container store in? That's the question. There's another store. Right. Containers for the container <laughs> yeah, store. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were in the closet section, which is all alpha that's the brand, and it's all very expensive. And anyway, I was holding something, and then I decided I didn't want it. So Daniel said, do you know where it was? It was goes? a child. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know whose kid this is, but I don't want it anymore. Right. So I took the little child, and I just put it on a shelf, <laughs> not the shelf yeah. that I had gotten it from. Sometimes that's what I do with my kids, just drop them off at the yeah. fire station and book. I felt okay about it. Uh, I, I feel, you know, I, I am... I great, but I felt okay. I, I am a... I, I'm telling you, I've hit a point in my life where... I go back to the aisle that I got it and I put back on the shelf properly and I'm that idiot that actually walks my grocery cart back to the thing where they all go. I usually am that the grocery cart person because otherwise it's too precarious. I feel like I spend so much time trying to balance it, making sure it's not going to hit a car in between two cars. It's it's, easier to just walk it back. It's all going to change for you when your kid gets old enough that you realize they're watching. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because other than that, it's like I can't be the one training my kid to be a dick. You know? That's, that makes sense. Leela Rolling Stone says, 30 years old and still don't know if it's toe the line, T-O-E, or toe the line, T-O-W. T-O-W. Oh, really? I thought, I thought it was – I actually thought it was T-O-E. Oh, uh, yeah. You're saying put your toes on the line. Yeah, to tow the line. I was thinking uh, like towing. Uh, 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 yeah, you're right. It probably is tow the line. What am I, an idiot am I? See, it took me five years to get through high school. This is what happens. <laughs> These, I was out on the day that they taught that. Right. I, for a long time, thought it was intensive purposes, not intense, for all intents and, and purposes. purposes. We used to, my buddy parents, Bracacci and I, used to collect common mispronunciations, you know, uh, especially in Valentine's <laughs> Day and, you know, rom- you know, romantical or whatever it is. Supposedly. You know I mean? Supposedly is just there. There's, I, I'm not going to lie. I judge you. <laughs> I judge you harshly if you say supposedly or, and especially is like, there's just no, place for that if you're a grown-ass person get your shit together and pull that one together you know what i mean you gotta you gotta figure that out i'm with you well <clears throat> according to wikipedia which could be wrong which is, there's there's a consensus it's wikipedia although i didn't go to the library <laughs> it's toe the line okay yeah, yeah that makes a total sense for some reason i i i, I immediately thought nautical mm-hmm. you know what i mean you went nautical it happens william <laughs> levi walker says once ha- in college i was like nobody knows me here <laughs> <Right>. uh <laughs> i was in the bahamas <laughs> in a crack house 
Exactly. How do you know you don't like nautical if you don't try You got to try it. Exactly. William Levi Walker says, haven't ever FaceTimed someone at random. It's always prearranged. Yes. I feel like on a lot of TV shows I watch, there's a lot of FaceTiming, which I think is just a way to show both characters at once. I refuse to believe that in real life people are FaceTiming all the time, but maybe they are. I've only ever done it. Yeah, it's always arranged and it's always something I don't really want to do ahead of time. And then I'm like, oh, that was fun. I, you know, FaceTiming for me, I always think of it as like FaceTiming my wife and kids from the road. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, my wife's, you know, sets up the phone on the dining room table and then walks away to finish making sure whatever she's making. And then the kids will not fucking look at the phone. They're <laughs> not paying attention. They're not in the frame. It's so frustrating and like, forget it. Never mind. Nobody's into it. I'm alone in Denver. <sighs> It FaceTiming is always, in my experience, talking to someone who doesn't have the full ability to actually engage in the conversation, like my nephew, right. or like being on the put, put on the phone with he's sixteen months, being put on the phone with him. It's just oh. a lot of going hi, yes, hi. I used to have a whole thing in my stand up act about when people are like, "Let me put my kid on the phone." You're like, "No, no, no, don't," because all <laughs> they do, all it's just. <sighs> <sighs> it's just listening to mouth breathing. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I also run out of things to say really quickly. With children? Yeah. It's like, oh, no, uh, please. I want to talk at your child because <laughs> they're not, never going to respond. Ashley says, grossed out by people that brush their teeth in a work bathroom and go pee while brushing. Uh, yes, agree with you 100%. I've actually never seen that. And- Wait, you mean simultaneously? That's what I assume she's saying. So then I thought maybe this is a guy thing. But it, first but of all, are you in it. the stall with them? What is happening yeah. at that office? I don't know. That's how... what happens at the container store. <laughs> um, I don't know how this works, but I'm grossed out by it. I, ju- I think she just maybe she just means one <sighs> trip to the bathroom, right? Maybe. Like I go pee and then I come out and brush my teeth. Hopefully, there's a hand wash in right there. Unless you're literally brushing your teeth with urine. She's going to need to write in and let us know if she's actually seen someone or heard or smelled or whatever. Someone peeing and like, like presumably you see someone at the sinks, begin the brushing process, and then they walk into a bathroom. Ew! It's It sounds like she's saying that she hears tinkling in the stall and then also shuka shuka brushing teeth. Like That's, multitasking. We need to follow up with yeah. this person. Yeah. But why am I so Tyler, grossed- we'll call Tyler with a tattoo <laughs> and then we check in with this chick. Why, why am I so grossed out by this idea though? I mean, I guess it's sort of like one is voiding and one is, you know. Cleansing? Uh, yeah, cleansing. Like two polar opposite right. experiences. You know what is... Polar opposite experience I find eating on the toilet. <laughs> and I recall there was a time where I was like, I could never, I'm not saying I eat lunch on the toilet or something. However, and again, I wish I hadn't started talking about this, but there, I, I just know that I had a moment somewhat recently where <clears throat> there was something I was still chewing and then I'm like, oh, I really got to go. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I don't have a problem with this anymore. I, uh, here's, here's, uh, here's my bathroom confession. Got no problem sitting to pee now. Well, good for if you. If I'm in my own home, absolutely. Do you prefer it? It depends on the time of day, but probably because I can, like, st- now I have my hands free. I can make use of that time. Yeah. I can look at my phone. I can check my email. And, you know, 
who doesn't want to sit down for 30 seconds. But uh, never in a public bathroom. Right. But like in my own bath, especially if it's the middle of the night. There's no aim Then you don't involved. have to turn on the lights. Like it's easier to go back to bed. Why wouldn't you? If you're a guy and you're like, the stupid guy stand. It's like, do yourself a favor. Have a seat, bro. So th- and this shows my lack of understanding of how this all works. You can just sit down hands free. You don't have to guide anything. It just all goes where it's supposed to it's go. It's all about just like gravity, how it would bro. be yeah. with, with me. Yeah. And then you just shaky shaky and you're good to go. But otherwise you A, you're st- if it's in the middle of the night, you're standing up, mm-hmm. so that, which wakes you up. Right. And you have to turn on the light, which wakes you up. You know, there's just I mean, this to me it, there is absolutely no case for standing That's in the middle of what the night when you pee. It makes me wonder why don't men always sit? Uh I, I mean, mean I understand a urinal situation or a there's a morning wood situation or something, but where you gotta, <laughs> you gotta sit back about eight feet. You gotta it's all about the parabola. You gotta arc <laughs> it. Yeah. You need a spotter. <laughs> Two meters right. William Fennell says, when I pull the plastic ring off the spout of a new half-and-half carton, I pretend I'm pulling a pin on a grenade. I don't do that. And actually, I am irritated by pulling that ring because sort of like your story with the uh, can opener that made a thing, I find that it actually almost pulls off my circulation. Cuts off your circulation. Yes, cuts off my circulation for a moment. I just did that a couple of days ago, took the top off of one of those things, and I I did not feel one way or another about it. But I will tell you this. I take a perverse pleasure being the first one to dip a knife into a new jar of peanut butter. Mm. When I see that virgin surface, I turn into like silence of the lambs. Like I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I literally am like, Oh, yeah. I don't know why that's so satisfying for me, that being that first one to get in there. Right. We are not a peanut butter house, so I don't... There's not a lot of jars of peanut butter that come in and out of this house. Wait until you have a kid, man. That's true. Because you're going to go through a period of like six years where that's all they eat. My sense is that anytime you open up a jar of peanut butter that has been used a bit, there's going to be crumbs in there. Is that true? Can you keep your peanut butter crumb free? You can. You can. You just... What I worry about is the jelly crossover, the jelly contamination. Mm. You got to... You have to spread the peanut butter, right? Then you go to that clean piece of bread, and then you clean it off before you go back into the jelly, because otherwise you're getting jelly in in your peanut butter or peanut butter in your jelly. There has to be a separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. Okay. And lastly... Bob Carlton says, just mirror everyone, childless, childless adult edition, hate the phrase, quote unquote, start a family. My wife is my family. I don't need kids to validate my family. I, until I got, until this came in, I never thought of it that way, but I can see what you're saying. I, I find, as someone who does not yet have a kid for like a week Wait, more. Wait, who is this? Bob Carlton. It's the bottom yeah. right. I find that when I say my family, I then have to specify whether I mean my husband or my parents and sister. And yeah, brothers. I mean, I, I maybe uh, this is insensitive, but uh, take it easy, Bob. Back down. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
<laughs> don't fucking care so much what other people think. Start a family. You're talking about your wives. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody would. Nobody is going to go, no, she's not. <laughs> she's not a family. Only children. It's just an expression. Start a family. Yeah. I mean, so what, what is so that what, what's the flip side of that is have children, have kids spawn. Yeah. yeah. Breed. Yeah. We reproduce by budding, Bob. <laughs> yeah. There's a molting phase. John Henson, it was so delightful having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Listeners, follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Uh, follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can follow me on Facebook or on Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And John, where should we go for you and plug anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I You can follow me at John underscore Henson uh, on Twitter. And uh, I am going to be at Comics uh, at Mohegan Sun, March 16th, 17th, and 18th. If you are in the Connecticut or uh, border Massachusetts area, come on out. I'll be at Comics March 16th, 17th, and 18th at Mohegan Sun. Do you have a basketball podcast or just a passion? Uh, no, I just have a passion. Did okay. you catch this? So I wrote an open letter. And I it, saw some. I saw some things and a bit of a periscope. It went. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the the basketball. Uh, so I wrote. I'm a diehard New York Knicks fan, which is like my cross to bear in life, and I won't bore you with it because <laughs> it's a tragic story if you're a Knicks fan. But I wrote an open letter to uh, uh, the some of the media in New York that I feel like are super negative, and it kind of went a little quasi viral in that basketball world uh i got actually genie bus the uh head of operations and owner of the lakers mm. reached out to me said it made her cry and invited me to a game i heard from uh john henson the nba player i heard from numerous sports writers all over um uh the country uh uh and just hundreds and hundreds of knicks fans who share my frustration with uh, some of the negative media surrounding it. And um, yeah, it was really you know, like Ben Stiller and Michael Rappaport and people That's that, so you know, cool. it was, uh, it was a quite an unexpected and uh, a welcome development. It was just something I wrote from my heart. It was a bit of a fever dream. And uh, I just put it out yesterday in the last 24 hours. have been crazy. Where did you publish it? Uh, my buddy, uh, Nick's dude uh, on Twitter, uh, at Nick's dude. Um, <laughs> He uh, he has a, a a website, a little fan website, and he and I talk about you know Nick stuff. And I was like, I, he had had a couple of run-ins on Twitter with some uh, really vicious sports writers in New York City, and we were just talking about how toxic the um, it's you know it's like a melodrama. It's like it's very hard for being a New York Nick is hard because you're just under this enormous media uh, scrutiny. And so I just wrote this kind of love letter to the Knicks and, uh, and, and why I feel like, you know, the, the, what, what a lot of those sports writers say is, Oh, it doesn't affect the on court product. And, and my analogy was, that's like saying man-made pollution doesn't affect climate change. It's, <laughs> it's of course it does. Um, and I guess I struck a nerve because uh, it, I was overwhelmed by the response. So uh, it's been kind of a fun thing. And I think it's going to turn into some basketball tickets for me. So I'm all about it. But I also do, uh, yeah, I do live streaming of games uh, at B-Ball Breakdown. My buddy, uh, Coach Nick, uh, who does film analysis, we do a, a, a Periscope uh, a live streaming of games, too. Nice. Everyone yeah. should go find that. Thank yeah. you again. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 
Rosie. 